Hello, welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Woodson-Croft and it's the week that Kai Havertz got his first hat-trick for Chelsea. Newcastle scored seven for the first time this century. And it's the morning after I dreamt that Scott Parker was the England manager and got so angry that he brought himself on in a World Cup knockout match. It's been a long week already, guys. Save me. Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark and Jonathan Northcroft uh, with us this week for the game. Uh, just while we're on it, what's the weirdest football dream you've ever had? Oof. I mean, I, my, my <laughs> dreams tend to be pretty fraught. I, I've never had any good, good football dreams. Uh, I had one once where I was on the pitch for Lincoln and I thought it was a serious dream, thought it was actually part of the team. And then I realised that I was just part of those kind of half-time go on, try and score a goal or hit the crossbar blokes, which was tragic in itself. And then I then <laughs> missed hitting the goal from a like a you know penalty spot, and everyone started laughing. It was it was awful. <laughs> it was you know I mean clearly clearly there's a lot more going on there, and probably you know it's probably time to start some kind of council in sessions. But um, <laughs> we, we can come to that later on in the season, perhaps. But yeah, that's my only footballing dream, and it wasn't a great one. Hugh, I'm, I'm, I'm really spooked you asked that because I, I almost never dream about work or football, but I dreamt about Deli Alley last night. Maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm worried about him, but I had an odd dream where I met Deli Alley's school teachers um, and I kept, I, my wife was there as well. I said to my wife, don't, don't tell them that I've met Deli Alley. Don't tell them I met Deli Alley because I kind of got embarrassed that, I don't know, they thought I might be digging for a story on Deli. That, that, that's all it was, but it was, a, it was obviously a sign that I'm kind of um, starting to, to worry about the lad. Maybe Deli Ali's having dreams about you, Jonathan. You never know. Ever since our darts match yeah. in Russia. Yeah. That'll be what it is. Gregor, you must have had a million football dreams. I think my strangest one was uh, being actually part of the the team in uh, Scotland's team in 1978 that, uh, no. when uh, Archie Gable scored that famous goal. And I was actually part of the team like celebrating with them on the pitch. I have no idea why. But it was, it was a uh, quite a poignant moment. You weren't twelve years old at the time, were you? <laughs> I wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant when you had the dream. No, 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 no. I was a fully grown player. I don't know how I got in the team. <laughs> <laughs> we can all dream. We can all dream. Uh, football at the moment, to be honest, facing a pretty bad dream right now. We're going to discuss the impacts of the new coronavirus guidelines in a moment. But when will fans be back inside grounds? We'll also talk about Deadpool, who's decided to rescue a National League team as 2020 gets even weirder, even further into the twilight zone. But as I say, is the sun setting over a number of football clubs with long and storied histories? There's two things to say on this. Number one, the announcement the return of football fans to grounds could be delayed a further six months, could be catastrophic and have huge ramifications uh, for football. And the second point is that football has joined in with over a hundred other sporting organisations to ask the government in the United Kingdom for a bailout, for a rescue package. We'll dissect that shortly as well. But Gregor, you have written beautifully, I should say, in today's Times about this subject. Why is it so important uh, I just think that there's a lot of people you know there's a huge focus on Premier League football understandably it's the kind of global product but and there's probably a lot of people who don't really realize how important a lot of clubs are to their to their locality and their communities and their towns um, and I said in the in the article that I wrote I started by saying I didn't want to sign for Grimsby Town when I signed for Grimsby Town because, let's be honest, it's not the most fashionable football club and I'd played you know, in the Football League for about a decade and dropping into the National League in which Grimsby played at that time was something I was a bit kind of hesitant about but I was just immediately struck by the, the kind of passion and dedication of, of the fans at that club and of all the clubs that we went to play against, even though there were smaller clubs and kind of little little provincial towns, they're still hugely important. And I don't know, I just think it's kind of, it's, it's very important to make that clear. And the National League is the first on the chopping block because it's supposed to, that's supposed to start uh, on October 3rd. And I believe they're in a meeting today, in fact, to decide whether they can even start or not. So, um, you know, but up until now, they they've all their organisation and planning has been about. You know, this is the reason their league was pushed back the start date because they believed they would be allowed a certain number of fans in 
in October, and now it's it's been cancelled. And the, the further you go down, the, the the more reliant and dependent clubs become upon uh, on match day revenue. And without match day revenue, it's it's hard to see how they function. Without match day revenue or a bailout from somewhere, it's very hard to see how they function. And for anyone who sees the demise of of some of these clubs as kind of collateral damage, because these are scary times and. You know, every business in every sector has got huge pressures and, and hugely precarious. But I also made the point that I just took one club, Dagenham and Redbridge, and I was blown away by speaking to their managing director about how widely utilised their facilities are. Um, I listed you know, every kind of society you could imagine from like a model railway club to kind of bereavement societies, a, a, a society of kind of Royal Navy uh, for kind of for former navy navy guys, old you know old timers, and then there's clubs, uh, there's clubs for like children's dance classes and and jujitsu and things. So every section of society, every demographic, uses Dagenham and Redbridge, and that that's mirrored around the country. So it's not just about football and the job losses and all that. It's about the kind of societal repercussions as well that would you know at a time when there's a lot of cuts and. The services anyway, so it's very important that there's something is done to to help these clubs. I think. Tom, you're a Lincoln fan. You could be massively impacted by this. Your team. Yeah, I mean, we I, I do a lot of uh, grumbling on this podcast in relation to Lincoln. I'm probably going to do a lot of grumbling further down the line on this show, but I would say that within mind of what Greg has just said, I feel very lucky to be a Lincoln fan in the current situation. Given the last few years we've had, given that all being well, we'll have a big uh, lump of cash coming from a TV game against Liverpool. When you look at that National League, there are lots of clubs in there. You know, Notts County are a massive club within uh, their city. You've also got clubs like Stockport, who are a massive club in the Northwest. You know, I, I would say arguably as big as, or if not bigger than Berry, Rochdale teams that are up there in terms of um, the Football League status. They've abs- worked their absolute arse off to get back to a position having been further down the pyramid. Now their future is so uncertain. They've still got a really, really loyal fan base. So I feel very lucky to be a Lincoln fan in some ways. But at the same time, there's definitely there's a feeling that this we're really at the tip of an iceberg here in terms of the problems that are going to come over the coming months. I think the feeling is that a lot of clubs were able to muddy their way through the last few months. You know, the financial losses of those final few games of the season could be, you know, factored out by, you know, losing a few big big wages off the wage bill and things like that. But a lot of clubs would have budgeted for football and for fans coming back before Christmas. And at the very worst case, my understanding is that they were kind of thinking about Christmas time for that Christmas period. I'd, I'd be amazed and I haven't got any kind of intel to suggest that any club will have budgeted for fans in March or beyond. And that is where you start to realise what a disaster it is. And when you speak to clubs and you you read about these clubs and what they're saying match day revenue is, you know, it, it, it's it's between the kind of 25% up to 50% mark of their income comes from not just ticket sales, but then from the food and the beer that you sell and all that, that comes with it. It's just, as, as Gregor said, it's a massive impact on the communities around them. It is a real worry, I think, and we're going to start, if there's nothing done about it, we're going to start to see a lot more clubs like Berry, Macclesfield, um, further down the line over the coming months. Jonathan, do you think football, wider football, can survive this? Not, you know, we talk about individual clubs and some of them might go bust, but if we see a number of clubs going bust, do you think those lower leagues can come through as well as a unit? Well, I think, I think what this has exposed, actually, is that we're talking about two footballs in this country these days. We're talking about the Premier League and we're talking about the rest. And I think the Premier League is now an international competition and the supporters come from around the world. And when you try and talk about issues like the EFL and the National League, you get very little traction from um, the fans of the big clubs. And a lot of the fans of the big clubs are based abroad. So, of course, they're not, they're, it's not even part of their culture. They're not interested necessarily in the pyramid. But that's, that's the global product. That will survive. The Premier League and football at the top end will survive. What looks like it's not going to survive in its current form, whatever happens, I'd say now, um, you know, there's going to be a change, is the football that's in the fabric of, of our country. 
Um, I include Scotland in that because you know me and Greg are from a place that's got 40 league clubs in a, in a tiny population, and that's not going to survive. Um, I cannot see how they, the the football league clubs or the national league clubs, get to the end of the season without fans, or even get to March without fans, without TV deals, without alternative sources of revenue, um, and continue. Um, the, 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 there's, there's things they can do. I thought Gregor's piece was really powerful when he talked about um, the the wage caps and the, 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 the fact that you know that's coming in belatedly, but that's not really going to solve the problem of, a, I think, the football uh, league, league One, um, where owners are on average putting in 1.3 million per club on average, league two, 800,000, I think it's 15 million in the championships. So that's owner funding. That's funding where the club will be, you know, in the red or, or against the wall if the owner didn't dig into his pocket. And that's across the league. And I cannot see how that is remotely um, sustainable. Even it wasn't sustainable before COVID and it's not sustainable now without fans. And I think we're in for a, some bleak stories, um, which is, you know, as we've been talking about, Every time a club goes, a community gets punched in the guts, really does, and, and we're going to have a bleak winter of that. The thing is, with the, with the National League as well, it's almost like the, the gulf is the same, relatively speaking, between that and the Football League and the Championship and the Premier League, because the central funding for clubs, all clubs get at the start of the season without, you know, without all the ticket revenue and stuff from central funding is £90,000. And when you get into the football league, into the EFL, that rises to like £1.3 million. So it's enormous, it's transformative. So that money will do something to sustain football clubs for the time being. It's, but it's going to rise up the pyramid slowly. The National League is the first now. They're in trouble. League Two, as Johnny said, you know, they're, they're, they've got serious losses and their matchday revenue on average is, accounts for about 40% of their total uh, turnover. And it's 35% in League One. So, you know, it, and it gets smaller into the Championship and smaller again to the Premier League. So the effects will be felt eventually. And the one thing I'd say about, you know, the Premier League, you know, not having much traction. And if you look at some of the clubs in the Premier League, if this had happened three, four, five years ago, Wolves, where were Wolves? League One, Sheffield United were in League One not long ago. Brighton were in League One not long ago. Burnley are hardly like a stalwart of the Premier League in, in decades gone by. Even Leeds United for like almost the last two decades. Well, Southampton so as is, well, quite yeah, a while ago, were in League is, One, weren't they? So to turn your back on on the rest of the pyramid and leagues in which you played and you're now finding, the, you know, you were looking out on the outside looking in and now you're fortunate enough to have the riches of the Premier League to, to tide you over through this. To turn your back on that would would you know, it would not be looked upon kindly like by 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 history. So I think I think it would be a horrible, horrible look if the Premier League did not do something. It's even if it is more advances of what they're what they're gonna you know, they they, they already give to to clubs and, you know, the the cut of the contract. And maybe if it's if that cut is 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 spiked a little bit, uh but it, they do have to do something. What responsibility, Jonathan, do you think the Premier League has to help? Well, I, I mean, I, I, as Greg has just outlined there, it's got a huge um, historical, philosophical responsibility um, to not let the rest of football die on its on its watch, as it were, because you know those clubs are not separate from the um, from the football league. Um, most of those clubs have, have got histories where they they go down and up. To the football league, and it's just an accident of history right now that, that some of those clubs are in the top flight and, and are lucky enough to, to be so. So there's there's that, but there's also, I mean, there's a practical reason for for helping out, which of course is the amount of talent the, the football league produces. I think something like 17 players in the last England squad had, had cut their teeth in the in the football league, to some respect or other. Um, and I can, I think, I think what when you speak to Premier League chairman and clubs. When I talk about the lack of traction, I think that's among a lot of supporters, sadly. I think the people, and maybe within foreign owners, but within the, the kind of owners who, who have been part of the football in this country for a long time, would understand there's a need to help um, the clubs. But what they, the, the stumbling block is a feeling that if they give the championship in particular lots of money, it'll just get squandered on 
you know, the ludicrous ways in which we see some championship clubs spend their money. And there's some rum old owners um, in the football league that aren't being policed properly. Why should we give money to them? Um, and that's all completely understandable. So I think for that bailout to happen, there has to be something given on the other side. And I think at the Football League, they are working quite hard as an organisation to try and improve things like governance, salary caps and the fit and proper owners test. Um, but they are only a organisation who, you know, they're basically, it's the clubs that, that, that make the decisions. The Football League is just an organisation that kind of um, puts into place what the clubs want to do. So they, they've got problems in trying to get those reforms over the line. Um, but I think they have to do that. If they do that, I think the money will will be forthcoming. But there's a bit of a standoff at the moment with the Premier League saying, I'm not sure we should give you any money because you'll just waste it. And the Football League saying, give us the money and then we'll change. And there has, there, probably, there has to be a change from the Football League, but there has to be a bailout from the Premier League. I think on that, just on the point on changing, Johnny. I mean, there's lots of to be, lots of things to be said about you know the salary cap within the Football League, but I think clubs have shown a willingness to change by even just discussing that as an idea and then voting it in. Obviously, it was done in quite a rushed way, but that shows a willingness to to change. And I would just say, if you link, you know, your point about Premier League football being a global brand to the impact that the Football League can have. The Premier League is a global brand because Premier League clubs can sign so many foreign players and exciting talent and we can bring in Kai Havertz and et cetera, et cetera. The way that clubs can do that is that they can also farm out all their young English talent further down the pyramid. I mean, you know, Harry Kane, Tottenham fans sing he's one of our own, but he's only one of your own because of his playing at Millwall, Lake Orient. Jamie Vardy worked his way up through the leagues. Man United have now got a homegrown goalkeeper in Dean Henderson, one of the most exciting prospects in the academy after seasons. I think he made his debut for the club the other night, having been at the club academy for nearly a decade or something. And he'd played his trade Shrewsbury Town, then Sheffield United, worked all his way up. Grimsby so, before that. Yeah, Grimsby before that. So you then have this thing of where if, if that facility's not there, where it's good quality football to send out your young English talent to, you know, be toughened up, you know, get game time, you're then going to have a choice between either sack off the English talent and we'll just bring in foreign players and everyone will be like Wolves and then there'll be no English team whatsoever because all the young English kids won't have played any games or you'll lose the foreign investment because you won't, you'll have decided, okay, well, we'll back the English talent and then all of a sudden the fans in Spain and China and everywhere else are going... I'm not that bothered about watching a team full of English lads who are pretty solid and trusty. It's such a massive... The knock-on effects of not getting this right, I think, are huge. And I think if the Premier League can't see that, it's a big thing. And one other thing I would just like to say, in defence of Harry Kane, say, as an example, the players themselves have a massive part to play in this. Because let's be honest, Rick Parry, EFL, Premier League chairman, us sat here, no one is as powerful as a tweet by a Premier League player in terms of getting this as a big national issue. Harry Kane obviously linked up with Leighton Orient during the summer. I think you saw with uh, Wigan, players like Rhys James, who'd been on loan there, put out tweets of support. Can you fund them? The players, any player that has had any time in the Football League has a massive responsibility over the next six months. If they're in the Premier League, and that's not me slagging them off, that's not me saying, oh, they earn loads of money, they should give it back. It's about putting the message out there that they can do they can make a big difference I think the thing the thing about you know what Johnny was saying there about the you know they feel that the Premier League feel that the EFL have to do something to show that they're not going to squander the money that's 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 all well and good but it's not going to help them in the next six months and it, you know there's things that you have to actually say as well the Premier League have now I think they surpassed last summer's uh, summer spend in the transfer window so, like you know, they they're talking about poverty too. They, they, there's a bailout from the government coming. They want part of it, and they've spent more money than they did last summer on transfers. Chelsea probably boosted that a bit, but it's happened. So you know, I think that's kind of, I think that's a bit, uh, you know, calling the pot the pot calling the kettle black. And I think it's true. So there needs to be a bailout. There needs to be there needs to be support now for the championship. But if they want things like wage caps, that just creates a bigger gulf between the Championship and the Premier League. So if there's going to be, you know, certain uh, regulations 
put in place, then we need to also look at fairer redistribution. Because if you put tighter regulations on what championship clubs can spend, it just creates a bigger, bigger gulf between the championship and the Premier League. You need to, the, the long-term aim, the long-term goal in making the pyramids more sustainable is fairer redistribution of the wealth. Because at the moment, there's just a huge upward drag. People have to spend, you know, these losses we're talking about in League One and League Two, if they don't spend that money, then they're bottom of the league. And they've got fans in their back saying, why are you not spending any, any money? There's an upward drag from the Premier League that is very hard for clubs to just kind of rein in their spending. Well, the biggest problem with the salary cap at the moment is League One and League Two, is, 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 you know, they, that's kind of gone through, notwithstanding the PFA negotiating a few details of it. It's a championship. And it's those clubs and those owners that don't want to agree to salary cap at the moment because they need to get in the Premier League and they, they don't want to do anything in the short term. And that, in a nutshell, is a problem that um, everyone wants to be financially sustainable, but only once they reach the Premier League. And then, as you say, Gregor, they get the Premier League and then, oh, actually, we need to spend £100 million on, on players. Um, but I, I want, I mean, the Premier League are already looking at what they can get out of this. And they're looking at getting the um, football league clubs to support their plans for uh, work permits and, and post-Brexit and all that kind of stuff. I also wonder whether down the line this is a, a, a chance for some of them to press home their ideas about feeder clubs. I could see that coming um, in the discussions if it's not already there. I, I think there's a few clubs that would, would really like to make that happen uh, and it might be something that's, that's sort of on the table. And I don't know about feeder clubs. I mean, desperate times and all that kind of stuff. Um, if that's what it takes to get a club to survive... Maybe that's what it takes, but it seems to me that something would also be lost if we went down that road. I mean, there are several points to pick up on there, I think. I mean, Tom, on your point regarding footballers and a tweet and how powerful their influence will be in all of this, you know what will happen, particularly if the whole country is going through a difficult time. It will immediately be like, and I know you referred to it, but people will just point the finger and say, right, slash your salary take 25% off, you could save a club on your own. I think Macclesfield needed 350 grand to save their club and that's a week of what Gareth Bale will get at Spurs. So it's a very difficult thing for them to get involved in in terms of the conversation. I agree with you, they should, but they'll be sticking their head above a parapet at a time where the, the country might not be as receptive to a multi-millionaire footballer. But that there you go, I'd rather see them say it than not. The second one on the Premier League and getting involved and asking for a bailout. You know, when I saw their name on that letter to the government, I really thought it was more about their influence. They're a major, major organisation, of course, the biggest organisation, really, even bigger than the FA in terms of English football. And so I thought they had to put their name on it. But I wondered whether they actually wanted some money. And then I read a little bit further down and they were talking about the fact that they've lost £700 million during this period. And then I thought, bloody hell, they actually want some money. I thought they were just supporting the other 99 plus organisations. That's going to be really interesting. On the feeder and breakaway clubs, Jonathan, I, look, it's an interesting idea. And I know Rick Parry at the EFL referred to the possibility in the future that they could, for example, keep five or six places on an EFL club open each season in the squad and Premier League clubs could just send players down. It's going to be interesting because you, you look around at some of the squads. For me, one of the strangest things about the Premier League is the sheer number of talented players who never play. Uh, we, we've reached that stage of excess really where you would have hoped that, fifth, that 15 players at each club were the ones that the manager really wanted to play every week and that the other 10 players in the squad would have been youngsters or fringe players, maybe not at the same level. It seems like every Premier League manager says they need a massive squad, 25 at least top draw players and we're always trying to make the squad better. You look around, you see in Everton, for example, you see the players who are just not going to be involved, not going to play much. And these are you know, internationals we're talking about, people making sixty, seventy thousand pounds a week. And they're not the only club, by the way. There's plenty of clubs like that. So I think the Premier League, even though there's money in that division, need to really look at the excesses. They can't just cancel players' contracts now, but the EFL and teams lower down the league, if they go into administration, you know, that's pretty much what's going to happen. They're not going to be able to pay players. So does football have a shift where it just pushes talent downwards? We see a lot more what we would perceive as Premier League players in, in the championship, for example. I don't know what the answer is, but I was very disappointed on the point 
of the Premier League and then being involved in helping to bail out lower league football. I was really disappointed to hear Sean Dice, the Burnley boss, a little bit of what you referred to, Tom, forgetting where you came from, basically. I mean, Sean Dice basically saying, we're the bigger organisations within this industry. Would you ask the bigger organisations in other sectors to bail out the smaller companies in their industry? You wouldn't. You wouldn't ask the bigger banks to rescue the smaller banks, for example. That, for me, misses the point of what football in England is all about, what makes England a special country for football. And also, I think you've already pointed out, you know, it's almost the Premier League forgetting where they that some of their players have cut their teeth. I just thought it was exceptional coming from the Burnley boss, you know, who, let's be honest, it only takes one bad season and you're in the EFL. Yeah, he's let himself down. I've always been a big Sean Dyche fan, but I wasn't particularly impressed by his comments. I'll go back to your point. You said... Um, about uh, footballers making the stand and things. It comes mm. down to communication and goodwill, doesn't it, In both in an understanding. So if uh, if Dean Henderson says, in, in calling for help, says, I'm going to give a wedge to Shrewsbury or Grimsby or whoever, or to this fund that's set up, we, you know, I'm leading the way, then, then others follow. Because he's shown that willing, perhaps, because otherwise... So many clubs down the pyramid are relying on goodwill from the fans. Like, there are a lot of fans. I'm one of them. I've got a season ticket for the coming season. I've now been told I'm not going to go to a game until March. I'm a cynic. I think I probably won't go to a game all season. I know that at some point in the next few months, I'm going to get an email from my club saying, right, these are your options. One of them is going to be, please, 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 some way we're going to try somehow to persuade you to let me let us keep some of your or all of your money by, you know, bef- beforehand. Even with the last five, six games of the season, we were given share options in the club, you know, a little plaque in the players' tunnel, just little incentives so that made us go, oh, yeah, go on then. That's fine. And you got a great message from the chairman on a, on a video link. That was great communication. And stuff, but it still relied on me being fortunate enough financially to say, "Yeah, fine, okay, I can do that." And you know, it relied on that creativity. That that goodwill might not be there now. We've had six months of this pandemic, and faced with another six months, and I just it's I I just don't think it's fair to rely on that goodwill of fans. It's got to come from some some goodwill's got to come from somewhere else, hasn't it? The other the other thing about about this as well is that getting supporters back in the stadium is not a panacea. I, I spoke to Gary Sweet, the Luton Town uh, chief executive last week for a piece, and he made a point that I didn't really consider, which is that they've sold 7,000 season tickets in a 10,000 capacity stadium. And, you know, they were amazed by the loyalty of their fans. I think there was a three, less than 3% of asked for a refund for the games that were behind closed doors last season. So the f- fans are saying, we're supporting you through this just now, you know, the ones that can, clearly. But unless they get 8,000 fans in the stadium, they don't make any money from ticket sales. So when are we going to see 8,000 fans inside a stadium? Or, you know, any, whatever your season ticket base is, they're the people who are going to come in first because they've paid. So you need above that for them to actually make any money from from season, from uh, ticket sales. And, you know, things like the... The food, food and drink sales are going to be very minimal at the moment because of the situation we find ourselves in. So it isn't actually a kind of uh, a big cure for unless until we get kind of back to normal in terms of numbers of fans coming in. It's not a it's not a you know a huge cure for all of this. Uh, the, the the one one thing I final last thing I'd want to say is that people kind of laugh when they when we talk about government stepping in here. And clearly, I don't think the government stepping in to help the Premier League is gonna is gonna happen. But the lower leagues and the national league, I don't think it's that wild an idea. And Damien Collins, who was the former uh, DC, DCMS uh, chair, I think he he came up with a plan in the summer, which was to say that any government support would be done would would be sort of handed over in in return for a share of the club and then over time they would allow the supporters a supporters trust to buy that back and they would have a stake in the club I, th- I think that's a good idea particularly at local at local level and if the sums we're talking about at local level are really quite small in the grand scheme of things so there are ideas out there it's just whenever he looks at football and says government bailing out football when there's all these millions swirling around in the Premier League they go no chance that's you know that's a disgrace 
it's not that crazy an idea. One of the really interesting things about that letter to government was that the Premier League was basically offering um, intervention as part of the deal. You can have some regulation put into our sport in return for this money. And for me, I, I sort of feel I'm a cool person, but when I start talking about government regulations in football, it all goes out the window. But it's something that I've, I've always thought is important. I've already used the example of listed buildings, government intervention already on this podcast this season. Amazing, I'm using this analogy again. But if you can put something in black and white that, that puts parameters on how owners can behave, because essentially the government has paid to keep that club going, for me, that is a positive in football. I, I like the idea of, of, of community ownership and if it has to come from a government bailout first then that's a good way to, you know it's one way to get there my cousin's part of the supporters trust that owns Barrow and, and that's a club that would be dead if it wasn't for um, supporters and the willpower sheer willpower of a community to keep a club going but it's stronger now for being part owned um, by fans and I think that would get away from some of the things that the Premier League clubs are uncomfortable about which are the kind of owners that come in and buy football league clubs and, and, and do things like it's happened at Wigan or Charlton or whatever you get away from that if you had a more transparent ownership and it was based around communities um, I do think the football league has to look after itself as well though I mean for all the sympathy that we're expressing um, it you know Gregor outlines it there with Luton Town and then even if they get 7,000 fans in that's not enough that's because the economics aren't right. So the wages have to go down. Sadly, the wages have to go down for players. Um, the the spending just has, has it, 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 there's no way other than fairly strict wage caps as far as I can see. Um, and the, the, the biggest thing I come up against is everyone's looking at the Premier League. I do ask how much fans of Premier League clubs really care about this. And just seeing... Tottenham being lauded for um, buying, you know, we're going to take back Gareth Bale, we're going to, you know, help him get his 350 grand a week. That's amazing. Tottenham, a club that's borrowed 175 million pounds from the government and furloughed staff to survive. You know, Arsenal being clapped on the back for giving 350 grand a week to, to Aubameyang, but they've, they've, they've got rid of 55 staff. What I'm trying to point out there is and the clubs that are being hammered are the ones that haven't spent in the transfer window but have maybe paid staff during COVID like Manchester United Man City and what I'm getting at there is I think a lot of Premier League fans just care about the, the soap opera and the show and they might listen to people like us talking and go yeah that's a bit sad but ultimately um, there's not enough willpower there and maybe it comes back to, fan, to players tweeting and using their power to try and galvanise a bit more willpower but I don't I don't see enough willpower at the top end yet to, to make me really confident that the clubs are going to go in and bat for the, the football league and so there has to be a change you know there has to be a change um, with the, the, the bigger clubs and who follows them well if any of the fans of the big clubs are watching now Johnny if you're talking about the show I can tell you that the show viewing the show of the football league this season is a bloody difficult thing because as a football league fan <laughs> You know, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. Like a lot of my friends, they're all Premier League fans. All were excited about the restart. They're not really too bothered about, you know, the ramifications of because they've got Sky Sports, they've got BT, great access to online videos and everything like that. Uh, for Lincoln and every other club, we've got a service called iFollow where I get a link with my season ticket to go into a stream essentially, which is like one camera panning left and right, the odd replay. I can select the radio commentary. And if I want an away game, that's a tenner as well. And so th tonight I'm going to watch Lincoln against Liverpool on Sky Sports. Replays, different angles. I'm going to get the Premier League experience. On the weekend, I'm going to watch Lincoln play Charlton. And I'll be lucky if I can even get in and log in and it'll work because there's serious problems with the tech. And that's another major problem for the clubs because this isn't the clubs who are doing it. These clubs have to buy these all-in packages that get you a website, a, a TV streaming and everything. They can't afford to pay, you know, a media exec and a producer and a presenter like the Premier League clubs can. You know, I think that's that stupid stat about Manchester City having 30 journalists who work for them. Like, it, it, it just isn't there. So I would say if there's one way, I promise you, if you're a football, if you're a Premier League fan listening, 
ask any of your mates who are in the football league and watch one of their streaming services for their games and then see if you feel some kind of sympathy for the position we're in as fans of the Football League. Because I can promise you, having sat there, spending 45 minutes trying to log in and speak to the iFollow tech team and getting no response for the first game of the season and missing our first game of the season, it's not fun. And you'll then start to realise, A, how lucky you are in the Premier League, and B, how much there needs to be some trickle-down help. Well, I don't think Premier League fans are going to get that experience, but they may well be paying to watch... Their team soon, Martin Ziegler writing in today, Thursday's Times, uh, that Premier League clubs in the future, October, I think, um, not every game will be televised like we've seen in September. And that means that they're looking at single game purchases, possibly maybe something to go with Premier League fans, season tickets, a bit like what you've had, Tom, but paying for individual matches that everyone's not able to watch on either Sky or BT, BBC or Amazon. Um Look, I think it will probably be much more money spent than the iFollow system, Tom. So they don't, they won't, they won't exactly get that experience. But it is a way of generating revenue, and it seems like more money will go to the Premier League clubs on top of what they already get from their TV deal. Yeah, I mean, and that's where, as I say, you know, if if you are a Premier League club and that happens, you'll log into your system and you'll get hello, welcome to you know, West Ham TV, I'm blah, blah, blah. And here's, you know, ex-legend this guy, ex-legend this guy with their views on the game. And for your tenor, you're going, actually, this is pretty good because I've not got the bias Sky Sports commentary, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and actually, I quite fancy this. And then clubs are going, oh, this this works quite well. So they then start negotiating that deal. But it all comes to the actual setup that they've got able to put in place in the first place. Tom, do, do, do you get a commentary on your iFollow games? Yeah, so you can you can have the local radio commentary... So we get BBC Lincolnshire through the site, or if it's an away game, you can choose. You could obviously you could have you know radio whatever uh, the away team if you wanted to just be a bit sadistic, but that's all you get. <laughs> and obviously, and obviously the problem with that then is that you're watching a screen, and your commentary is from a guy right at the back with his mask on. <laughs> And you're watching it and he's going, oh, and he's played it wide to Morton. And you're going, that's not Morton, that's the other guy. Because <laughs> so, you're watching the screen and you can actually see it a bit better than him. So, it, yeah, it's, it's and, it, and again, as I say, it's not the club's fault. So, you know, I'm there not being able to get in and I'm tweeting the club going, this is a disgrace. It's not their fault. They literally have just had to buy into an all-in package. And as the season progresses and if, as I said, they're going to be putting out these goodwill messages or, and we'll throw in five away I follow passes for you if you geek, let us keep your season ticket. How many fans are going to go, oh yeah, please, when they're going to, their option is a buffer in streaming service, which is nothing to do with the clubs. It's, it's, it's a, through the EFL and through another partner company. And it's just something they've had to sign up to a long time ago. Before I move on, I think we've got to move on soon, but this whole conversation makes me think about, um, I think we mentioned already breakaways, but really, you know, could there be a, a franchise model? Could we see teams packed into three divisions of 20 and then, yeah, God forbid, Gregor, isolate clubs lower down? Could we see five or six teams from Scotland join in with that and oh. listen, <laughs> a, a European Super League come in uh, as well? That's, the only, that's the, probably the most likely one. Yeah, there would be enormous listen, pushback. Listen, Gregor, if I'm Celtic or Rangers and I look at the financial situation, you know, you've got to look at Cardiff and Swansea and see that 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 long term for your football club, or uh, you know, right, it might cause another referendum, but you know, you could you you could make a lot more money being in with the English clubs. Well, I think uh, Celtic's owner Dermot Dermot Desmond actually gave an interview last week saying that he was hoping that would happen, and fans aren't very happy about it. <laughs> so mm. The truth is, it's true. I mean, they would compete, but look, that's 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 blue sky thinking. It's crazy. I think I also think there'd be an enormous pushback to any alteration of the pyramid and to anything like feeder teams uh, to any of this because. I think you're looking at it from the from you know people also say things about regionalized leagues like that that saves you you know maybe a, a couple of hundred thousand a year when clubs are spending six million on a wage bill in League One so it's it's coming at it from the wrong angle you've got to you've got to reduce costs and control costs any club can be viable if they live within their means and that might mean that someone like Fleetwood Town don't rise from the tenth tier to the to the third tier because of the largesse of Andy Pilly, their owner, who's a multi-millionaire. So, you know, or it'd be harder for him to do that anyway. So the, the biggest thing is 
cost control management and that has to be kind of that has to be enforced and it might be part of a, a package of bait, like, you know, a bailout package from the Premier League or from government or both Johnny you're nodding along no I, I, that's bang on I think that's absolutely spot on if um, I, I look I think it's a moment in time I think that there has to be a short term injection of money and in return there has to be that, that reorganisation that means cost control and also some grip on who is owning football league clubs some fit and proper owners test uh, I mean I spoke to Steve Parrish about this and he wrote about it in the Sunday Times and his point was that what happens at the moment is clubs go to the wall um, everybody is frantically looking for a buyer and that anyone who arrives offering to buy a club just gets welcomed with open arms and often these are guys who are worse than the last ones they're just in it for a property deal or whatever so some way to stop those um, takeovers happening as well, which probably means like actually policing it in real time rather than some system where they look at the finances, but by the time it happens, the takeover's gone and it's, it's too late. So that is it, cost control and better ownership. But in the short term, there has to be money, has to be money given um, before any of that can happen or else clubs will go to the wall. Gentlemen, thank you. I'll just say for the lawyers, Tom's comment about Sky Sports is is not the legal position of the Times. It's Tom's individual opinion. No way Jamie Carragher or Gary Neville were in any way partisan on their coverage. Uh, let's move on with our, except for the fact Tom's wearing a Lincoln shirt, our non-biased coverage. Uh, Ours is biased. The- Ours is biased. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the Games podcast sponsored by Lincoln City Football Club. I'm telling you. <laughs> and if you're listening today and you want to review it, uh, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and let us know what you think there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Right then, gentlemen, I think it's time we move on and discuss West Ham United, who, after just, what, three or four games in a couple of competitions, it's already turning into a bit of a nightmare season after their manager, David Moyes, defender Issa Diop, midfielder Josh Cullen, all test positive for coronavirus. They got their result... An hour and 10 minutes before kickoff in the Carabao Cup, EFL Cup against Hull City. They were already at the ground, the three of them, when they found out their results and had to quickly get themselves home. But I'm sure they would have interacted with the rest of the West Ham squad. The interesting thing going into this game, there's a couple of things, of course. Not just the fact that they got the test results so soon before kickoff. The fact that they offered to test their opponents, Hull City, before the game. And Hull City declined, but also the fact that it, 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 of course, became apparent that EFL clubs going up against Premier League clubs in the EFL Cup, one group of players tested, the other group of players not, means that it might be a particular place for transmission of football match, putting players, I think, at risk. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I think that the fact that, well, I think Grant McCann, the whole manager's comments were hugely interesting afterwards. Uh he was asked why Hull refused uh, the test that West Ham offered to pay for. And he said, because we didn't want to create anything. Um, we're comfortable with following the guidelines in around the club. We decided against it. We felt we were fine. No one is showing any symptoms or anything like that. We always monitor the players' well-being. It doesn't really work like that, Grant. That's not really, you know, I think Leighton Orient, who... You know, I think there's been reportedly as many as 17 players tested positive before the Spurs game this week. Um, 
you know, I think if there was any symptoms, they would have done done tests themselves. So clearly, these players are asymptomatic or staff members. So it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's posing a bit of a a tricky tricky question for for the EFL Cup, for the FA Cup to come, and actually for the rest of the continuation of the Championship, League One and League Two, because they're no longer necessitated to to perform tests, uh, weekly tests. So you know, I think that's going to have to change when the when the transmission rate is rising so so quickly. Um, but yeah, I think you know the whole issue about West Ham and and how <laughs> how an hour before kickoff the manager and two players go down. It's kind of you know West Ham season. Although they got the win, West Ham season has really started pretty pretty terribly. There's no, they can't catch a break. Yeah, I mean, I would just so I would just say quickly on that point about you know Hull and the worries. As soon as the late Orient testing came out, I have genuinely just been terrified the entire week that tonight's game is going to be off I mean still I'm sat here now just before I made this point checking the club's Twitter feed to see whether there was any announcement about tests for the game tonight against Liverpool and so I'm not I'm not saying clubs should be carefree and careless with coronavirus but I, you can understand why there's yep. a little bit of like lower down the pyramid a little bit of like please god let's just hope we've got no positives because and it comes back to a point you made uh, previously on the podcast around the restart and we were talking about how the pressure's on footballers. We're in a completely different world. When the restart happened, transmission rate was very low. We'd all been in lockdown. Everything was much easier. Now, transmission rate's very high. We're at level four. Government are very worried, and we're expecting football to carry on. How can these footballers, who've all made probably... Lots of them have got kids, partners, going out and about. We're going to see more positive tests, aren't we? So... I think, as you say, this is a real, real problem. But I mean, the West Ham thing is it's absolutely farcical and slightly sim- symbolic of the way that the way they're at as a club to me. It is. I mean, I, my, my, it makes me think my, my, my best mate's a GP and, and he said to me that for years he's had people phoning up the surgery um, saying, oh, doc, I've got a fever. Oh, I can't go to work looking for a sick note. And he said, nobody phones up saying they've got a fever anymore. Just nobody, because <laughs> no, nobody wants to get tested. And it's kind of that scenario that we're in but um, if you think about the Carabao Cup we've just been talking about the Football League the Carabao Cup is one of the things that the Football League really needs to be a success in order to yeah. get some sort of revenue in for those clubs so it's really unfortunate that, that, that we've got this problem but it's another problem that exemplifies the financial gulf between the top and the bottom and how can Football League clubs afford testing um, and how can they? You know, can you blame Hull for um, not wanting to jeopardise that that payday? I feel really sorry for Leighton Orient. It's a really difficult situation to be in. But the attitudes have changed towards COVID. I mean, remember that one test for Mikel Arteta was enough to close down one positive for Mikel Arteta was more or less enough to close down the Premier League. Whereas now we're having people testing positive, but everything carrying on. Yeah, um, we're talking about Moyes so being back on the touchline. Absolutely. Yeah. Moyes back on the touchline or, you know, via a video thing on the dugout. You know, feel sorry for his assistant manager who's going to have to walk around with his phone in front of his face. <laughs> Neil, Warnock, says, uh, Neil, Neil Warnock did that for Middlesbrough apparently <clears> at the weekend <throat> and he brought on the substitute who, who got the equaliser. So, you know, Bor- Wiley Warnock's still doing it from his house in yeah, Cornwall or whatever. <laughs> he's, uh, he's certainly not watching I follow. I can tell you that. <laughs> you <know. laughs> I think... Um, one of the interesting things again about West Ham, uh, David Sullivan giving an interview this week, trending, outraging all of the West Ham United fans. But the the funny thing about it was again, it would just it just added to what's going on with their season. That he basically came out and said, the players that are at the club aren't up to it. Lots of them, um, they weren't my signings. It was a previous manager, Pellegrini. Don't say we haven't tried to invest in the club. He also said, I wouldn't buy an unknown 28-year-old centre-back for £40 million. He basically turned down the idea of signing James Tarkovsky live on the radio. Um, But it was just one of those, um, I'm not going to say passing the buck moments again. I guess he thought he could clarify the situation with fans, but left them more annoyed. And it just, you know, talking about selling Grady Dean Garner to West Brom, for example, and basically saying, well, all the players that we've got, all the wings that we've got are better. And then at the same time saying that the players that Manuel Pellegrini signed were useless. Was like, the, was yeah. just the weirdest juxtaposition. I don't know what's going on there. Well, I think there's the, the, so many decisions have been made over the last few seasons that 
it almost makes it impossible for the owners to say anything that would appease a lot of fans, I think. I mean, you know, I've got a good friend of mine who's a West Ham season ticket holder and he's he's my age, he's 31, 32, and he said he's ne- there's never been a more depressing time to be a West Ham fan. And I know that's put in the context of what we were talking about before with the Football League, but in just in terms of being a West Ham supporter, he said this is the most depressing time because it, whether it's the Dean Garner transfer, which, I, you know, I, I from the outside was shocked about the uproar almost around it but I've also got another friend who's a West Brom fan and he said I have no idea how we've managed to sign him for that more money after spending the time on loan last season I thought he'd be straight in the West Ham team and it's just that you know I've said it before about Everton about not really understanding what they are or where they're going West Ham are arguably worse than that there's no coherent you can't really see I've not really seen anything since they moved to the new stadium that suggests what they are and where they're going whether it's managerial appointments, transfer dealings, players coming through. I mean, you know, you've still got arguably Mark Noble until maybe the end of last season was like their most important player, which is madness given how many players they've had brought in and all the money they've spent. And so it's almost like Sullivan, Gold, they keep talking and trying to say things to appease fans. And there's nothing they can say because it only serves to highlight the mistakes they've made in the past, whether it is Dean Garner or whether it is the stadium or whether it is, you know, the other transfers. To, to me, you know, a lot of West Ham fans want a change in ownership, don't they? I don't think they're going to get it anytime soon. But that that's what they want. They want some clear direction. I, I, would, I suspect they might get it under David Moyes a little bit. Um, but, I, you know, it, 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 they feel very lost and I feel sorry for the supporters. Dean Garner was a almost unprecedented situation, wasn't it? Where the manager didn't want it, the club captain didn't want it, the fans didn't want it, and and it still took place. I was I was amazed that it it did go through, but the, 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 they have to. Tom's right. They have to follow something. They have to follow some plan. They haven't done it until now, and I do think, and I am biased. I'll admit it because I, I know David Moore as well. But I do think their best bet at the moment is to. Um, fall behind what, what his vision for the club, which is um, young players, a new team, homegrown and getting away from the Felipe Anderson, Yarmolenko style, not necessarily those players individually or possibly some of them individually, but that style of signing, that's what he that's what he wants to get away from. And I think that's actually what Sullivan, in a fairly clumsy way, tried to express today. My fear is that West Ham's history shows you under this ownership is that they might get behind that for a bit and then just change it and bring in another manager and sign a, another clutch of, of, of fantasy signings and until they settle on something they're, they're done the way that you know the thing that I, it kind of backs up what Tom says is that you know he said the fans were, were saying I, I needed to employ a director of football so I got uh Mario Husillos and you know with Pellegrini right and I gave him 200 million to spend and it didn't work well like yeah, but you you know you hired them and you threw money at them and you didn't really question who they were signing. Uh, you know, there's no structure there. So now he's just kind of wiped that away and put the, you know swept that into the bin and he's putting all his faith. It's very kind of old school business, putting his faith in the one in one guy, one big kind of figurehead of the club. And Johnny's probably right at the moment that probably is West Ham's best chance. But it's still a kind of pretty demoralising thing for if you're a West Ham fan to think there is no you know when you see what the kind of the structure and the and the systems systematic way that clubs progress other clubs successful clubs there's none of that at West Ham it's just right we've, that didn't work we, we tried it it didn't work it was expensive now we'll give it back to Moisey they're one of those clubs I've watched the last couple of games they've had in the EFL Cup as well and it, it sort of signifies that they should have a deeper score than they do, but the amount of sort of failed, you know, Sebastian Haller, Yarmolenko and Felipe Anderson is your front three in your EFL Cup matches. They might have a bit of a cup run, to be perfectly honest, but it's just, um, they are in a position, as we get to the end of this transfer window, that some other clubs in the Premier League are, that they have some high money investments that no one's exactly queuing up to buy. And so what do they do? It's dead weights, right? It's it's players that you, you don't particularly want in your team, but you can't get out. And um, they will have to find a way. You know, what's interesting for me is David Sutherland talks about only having £40 million to spend and I'm not going to spend, you know, three quarters of my of that budget on one player, for example. 
but why not wait until the end of the window and try and get yourself two or even three players for your 40 million quid who are maybe surplus to requirements at some of those other clubs we mentioned, Manchester United, Everton, you know, maybe not their, maybe not the quality of player then that, that David Sullivan or David Moyes thinks will improve the squad. But actually, I think there's more value than going after a £35 million. And I think they have been linked with Fafana at St Etienne for around £35 million. Um, surely there is m- more value to be had in the market than that. Yeah, but it comes down to, uh, I, I mentioned this nearly every podcast now, but it comes back down to having an ethos and a, a plan in place in the first place that you can then fit players to. And I think, you know, Johnny said that he backs Moyes to to put that in place, but he's going to need some time and he's going to need to clear out some of that deadwood, as you say, Hugh. And they might even be in a position where they have to really ride through a really horrible period in order to get that. Because, yes, we were slagging him off for his views on the EFL, but Sean Dyche, whenever you look at his transfer dealings, everyone makes little jokes and, you know, little funny memes on Twitter and things, but that's a Sean Dyche signing. But the root of that is that it is a Sean Dyche signing. You know he's going to play well. He's going to fit in the squad. You know he can probably play a couple of positions. You know he'll run around like an absolute lunatic for the manager. And so he buys players that he wants and that he fits his system and fits his way of playing. And if you chop and change the manager and if you don't give a a manager time to embed a style and a system, you're never going to get that, that kind of those players and that consistency with signing. Sean Dyche uh, signing Dale Stevens, by the way, just exactly. to underline yeah, yeah. your point. <laughs> exactly. Someone he bid, he bid for six years ago on six occasions, didn't get him then. He's finally got his man. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I can't remember where he came from. Gregor might know. Ashley Westwood when he signed for Burnley. I was thinking, oh, I'm not, not sure about Villa. that. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think he'd been in the Villa team that either went down or was struggling in relegation. Went to Burnley and I was thinking, is that that's their summer signing? Jesus, Burnley are going to struggle. Ashley Westwood's been one of the most consistent central midfielders in the Premier League for the last four or five years. And like, that's that's what you've got with Burnley. People slag it off and say it's not nice to watch. but And I'm not saying West Ham need to imitate it exactly, but that's what they've got to look for in some respect under Moyes now. They've got to find some level of consistency on the pitch, tactically, in terms of transfers and the players they bring in as well. Slight slight tangent, but who is the most Sean Dyche of Sean Dyche signings? Um, Dale Stevens might be close, but I think it's probably still Phil Bardsley for me. Exactly. <laughs> Eric Peters. Eric Peters from Stoke, who towards the end of last season was playing as a left winger, I think. Got a couple of assists <laughs> uh, playing in front Eric, of the table. Eric, Eric Peters isn't British, so I don't think he qualifies. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. That's a bit, it's a bit flamboyant for old Daishi. But yeah, I, I think that's a good, it's a good parallel, I think, to have between West Ham and Burnley in terms of where they're at at the minute. With um, with the Diangana thing, just a word on that. I do wonder, and this is the kind of journalist brain, slightly cynical brain t- ticking, but I think the fuss made of it, and it was unusual what Mark Noble did. To me. I thought Declan Rice, I thought the next battleground is Declan Rice. That If you're talking about homegrown young players that West Ham do not want to lose, that squad and that manager do not want to lose. And I do wonder whether as big a fuss was made about Diangana to kind of stake out the, the, the lines to the ownership, you cannot now sell Declan Rice. Because I mean, and I don't think they can now. Well, I think it, for me, it's maybe the opposite. Um, I think they maybe really? have to. Well, I think if, if David Sullivan's coming out saying he's only got £40 million to spend and half a squad full of players the manager isn't interested in, then the biggest way of raising funds for them is going to be selling Declan Rice. It might it may be to buy players on the pitch. It might just be to rescue the club financially. We don't know what's going to happen over the next 12 months. But certainly, if you're a club in West Ham's position with one major asset, it's going to be a very difficult position to turn down. Like like he said, he had to sell Grady Diangana because there were no offers for any other players and they needed to raise some money. So the idea that Declan Rice, you know, West Ham United will be turning down £70 million bids. I mean, I just don't see that happening. <laughs> Listen, let's be honest, in terms of Golden Sullivan, the fans already dislike them enough that if they sell Declan Rice, it won't be a major change in how they're perceived. <laughs> Wow, you're probably right, Hugh, but I, I just think that is carnage. That is that is a point. Yeah. Of, I mean, Utilis. I know that. Yeah, how can they come back from that? The ownership if this if they sell Declan Rice this summer. But if you sold him and said, "Hands up, we've got it wrong in the past," and then that goes to you know almost like the slightly elevated Brentford model, and they go out and they buy three, a, you know, attacker, a, a winger, and a centre back, 
Greg is shaking his head. He's not having it. He doesn't see it. But it that, doesn't but that's matter. The, I honestly don't think it would matter who they bought because you think, you th- think Declan Rice so is much, there. There would be so much anger in the short term and medium term that it would not be worth it for them. And I think probably, I think I said that a couple of weeks ago in the pod that they probably did look at it and think we've got two assets. We need to sell. We probably need to sell one. And they thought there would be less fuss about Dean Gunn. And they were actually probably surprised by how much he, he hardly played. I think he played 11 times for West Ham. You know, he had a good season alone at West Brom. So they were probably quite startled by the, the fan reaction. And that really was because of Mark Noble. Yeah, but I think it's also symbolic as well, isn't it? I mean, not uh, try, really genuinely not trying to bring this up, but like Lincoln signed a player from West Ham's youth <laughs> team. Um, but like, I'm really, I'm, I'm not, don't laugh. Uh, but like my mate who was a West Ham fan sent me a screenshot of the West Ham message boards. And this was a kid who was like 18. And they were livid that they that we that they let go of someone else without giving him a chance. It's that sim, you know, it's just it's just symbolic, I yeah. think, of the Yarmolenkos and the Felipe Andersons yeah. that that this guy doesn't get a chance. Doesn't mm. matter if he's only played eleven games; he's ours. We've we've built him, we've grown him. Why have we not given him a chance before selling him on? And I think Grady Dean Garner maybe fit the profile of Josh. Bowen, who they'd seen do so well, having come up from the championship, maybe they were just a, a bit excited about another winger who'd been so good in the championship, maybe having an impact. And of course, he's one of our own. I think just something to be excited about being taken away from the West Ham United fans left a bit of a bad taste for them. Look, gentlemen, appreciate you being with us. We haven't got long left, but we've got to talk about football entering the twilight zone. If you're a Wrexham fan, you would have seen this news. And I was a little bit like... I'd seen the headline, it said, you'll never guess who's taking over, trying to take over at, at Wrexham. And I was like, well, it's got to be Robbie Savage, surely. And no, Hollywood actors was the answer. Deadpool actor Ryan Reynolds, uh, better known to me as Van Wilder, I think. Uh, and Rob McElhenney, he's co-creator and actor of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Two big stars trying to become big investors in Wrexham. It's a big story. And yeah, I was left with my mouth wide open. Gregor, what was your reaction? <laughs> Pretty much the same, yeah. I was thinking, I've got to Google Ryan Reynolds here, check there's not another Ryan Reynolds. Or, you know, <laughs> is it April already? You know, it's been a pretty weird year, isn't it? So <laughs> that was my initial thoughts, definitely. Um, but I mean, then you read about how wealthy they are and how they, you know, they intend to invest two million to get them through the... It's a positive, I suppose, it, you know, part of you think, why are they doing it? And mm. is this kind of a little toy pet project? And sometimes these things don't end very well. But another part of you thinking, there's been a lot of doom and gloom around, particularly in the National League. Um, you know, this is a little ray of sunshine, maybe. And certainly if you're a Wrexham fan, it's going to brighten up your day. <laughs> yeah, I did think I did think for a minute they discovered oil beneath Wrexham's pitch, but there you <laughs> yeah. go, maybe. <laughs> um, we're going to play a little bit of a game to end just on that story. We're going to pick a club and either compare it to our favourite celebrity or maybe choose some dream celebrity takeovers as well. Tom, who have you gone for? Well, I'm going to make a shameless dig at Liverpool as our opponents tonight and say that Liverpool's celebrity owner could be uh, Tom Cruise because they're both um, world famous, both got cult-like, almost religious, you know, connotations, <laughs> and they never stop talking about themselves. <laughs> um, and there goes all of our Liverpool listeners. Uh, but that's my little—that's my little jokey dig. Forgive me. You'll be laughing when you beat us five 0 later. But my serious one is uh, that I think you could see Matthew McConaughey taking over at Wickham. Uh, firstly because I'd love to see him and Gareth Ainsworth stood side by side because I think they'd look really cool and you know I could see maybe McConaughey getting involved at Ainsworth band but also because you know they're very similar both used to think a bit rubbish Wickham further down the pyramid McConaughey doing his How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days rom-coms and now <laughs> that's now, one of my favourite films by the way now you've got a t- oh, yeah, it's guilty pleasure but failure to launch <laughs> not as good though um <laughs> Now you've got to take them both seriously. McConaughey, you know, True Detective, all the excellent films, Dallas Buyers Club and Wickham in the championship. So they'd be my serious one. Liverpool fans, I'm only joking. Please don't stop listening. <laughs> Johnny? <laughs> um, well, look, I, I, I think Ant and Deck have to take over the old firm. I think it'd be the perfect fit. Tedious double act. Um, they do have a following, but most of us can't understand why they're popular. Might not like each other anymore, but cannot get away from each other. They're chained to each other for life. 
no chance of them cracking Europe or any international state. <laughs> very and good. They're, not, they're not actually, also, they're not very big when you see them in real life. So that's <laughs> oh, <laughs> very good. Very good. Should we just give the listeners a context of who you support, Johnny, just so you can... Yes, I support Scotland's Premier Club, which, of course, is Aberdeen. There we go. There we go. There we go. I think from having been to several games when there were fans there and seeing the number of these haircuts and the peaky hats, I think uh, Birmingham, the the cast, the entire cast of Peaky Blinders should form a consortium <laughs> and uh, take over the Blues. Killian <laughs> Murphy and Sam Neill and Tom Hardy, all of them just bowling up in their full full uh, full get up in the peaky hats. I think there'd be enormous commercial potential in that. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> we might, we may well see that in the future. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see. I've got a bit old school. Um, Cambridge University's Review Club of 1981. <laughs> Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, Tony Slattery. But I want them to take over Cambridge United, go back to Cambridge and make an all or nothing style behind the scenes documentary. I'm sure it would be full of laughs, better than the thick of it. And that's just that's just for commercial comedy purposes. <laughs> that, that would be excellent. It would be a better watch than the Jose Mourinho show, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listen, guys. I don't think we topped Ryan Reynolds, although. You know, it's still Ryan Reynolds. What in the hell? What is going I'll on? Tell here? You, I, I don't believe it's true. If we, if it's actually happened by this time next week, we can dedicate an entire. Sh- Let's try and get him on. He's very prominent. <laughs> he's very prominent on Twitter. One of us should um, drop him a message. Huge. See if he. See if you can. You know, make a few manoeuvres. <laughs> There is still a chance it's like two local guys that own the rugby league club down the road and want to join in with Wrexham AFC because I still find it hard to believe. But he's been tweeting about it, so it must be real, unless he's just played along with it, which would be very bad for Wrexham fans, who I think are getting a little bit excited. But I digress. I'm sure we'll be talking about that, by the way, if they do take over the club uh, in due course. Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, thank you for being with us on this extended uh, episode of The Game podcast from the times Uh, a reminder thank you for listening you can listen to the game now on the amazon music app it's also available on apple Podcasts, spotify acast or any of your favorite podcast suppliers you can now also get the show there and all other podcasts from the times on the times radio app as well so just search for times radio on your usual app store we'll see you on monday enjoy the weekend (laughs) 